Welcome to What's Your Beef? Each week, we will introduce you to people working in the beef industry and some of the characters that help deliver the iconic event that is Beef Australia. Hello, I'm Jane Cudahy and this is What's Your Beef? To be honest, I'm a bit nervous to introduce today's guest. There's a list of achievements and accolades as long as my arm. But in a nutshell, Lorraine Gordon is a carbon farmer and holistic beef cattle trader at Ebor in the Northern England Tablelands of New South Wales. She's also Southern Cross University's Director of Strategic Projects and Associate Director for Organics Research. Lorraine was the 2018 Rural Community Leader of the Year for Australia, accepted the 2019 Australian Financial Review Award and the 2019 BHIRT Higher Education Engagement Award. She's also a graduate of the Australian Rural Leadership Program and previous ABC Rural Woman of the Year. But wait, she's also completing her PhD in economical, oh, sorry, ecological economy. Oh, goodness me, I really messed that up. Ecological <laughs> economy. Economic ecological story. economics or go. economic Thank ecology. You. you can go either way. See, <laughs> either way Lorraine, is good. Oh, my goodness. What do you put on your business card? Like, what's Nothing. Your- I don't own one. <laughs> probably, probably a good deal, actually. You won't not be pigeonholed. And I'm sure yeah, exactly. I- Exactly. <laughs> I'm sure I've missed something there too. But look, we'll get to your various industry roles and achievements directly, but you're obviously very passionately involved in your industry and I want to know how that started. So when did you know that the beef industry was for you? Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> if I told you I knew it when I was 14 years old, growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney, um, you'd that would seem very strange, but it's probably the truth. Um, what I did know w- was for me was the wide open spaces and remote and rural Australia. Basically, I needed to be there and that's where I felt the most comfortable. How did you know um, you needed to be there? Were you studying it or you had country cousins? No, or how I, did you know? I had I had friends from the country. I was um, I was actually going to school in Sydney and so I had boarding friends that came from rural areas and I went out and visited um, Central West and Canamble and Pilliga and Come By Chance and then I went ended up in the Gulf Country and all over the place and I just loved it. I just loved the whole – I love the people, I love the landscapes, I love the lifestyle and I am extremely passionate about regenerative agriculture. Um, but back then, you know, sponge because this was all very new to me. I did have relatives – up in Ebor um, on a grazing property. I had an aunt up there and so I would visit her at every opportunity. Every time literally school would finish uh, for the term and I was gone. I was gone that by that evening. So um, it, it was very much a calling for me and I've really, I've done, I've been involved in a lot of other industries. I've been involved in regional development, in tourism, um, in various leadership roles, but it, I'm always drawn back to the complexity of agriculture and, and ecology. So the property that you are working with now, you're turning off a 1,000 steers per annum is my understanding, and so that's on a mm-hmm. time-controlled management plan. So what does that mean mm. when you're talking about regenerative agriculture and time-controlled 
management, which I guess ties in together. Yeah, time control grazing mm. and holistic mm. management. So, so basically, it, it's all about giving pastures um, that critical rest period that they need to rejuvenate, I guess, and encourage um, photosynthesis to occur. It means moving the livestock, um, hooved livestock, around a landscape in a managed situation. So it's not like rotational grazing. You actually have to plan it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you do put in your grazing charts and you plan these movements, but you also have to know how to read the landscape and read your pastures and know, you know, if you've overgrazed or undergrazed a paddock. Um, So it's about uh, animal impact. And what that does is animal impact over a short period actually encourages the whole system. Uh, It boots the whole system. And it is our number one tool um, for uh, soil carbon sequestration is move livestock across the landscape in a timely manner, ensuring that we have adequate rest periods for those pastures to rejuvenate themselves. And I've basically improved um, our whole property through this method. I've been doing time control grazing now for some 28 years. Before it was trendy then. Uh, <laughs> before it was trendy. Boy, they'd be delighted to hear you say it's trendy. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess I was one of the first cohorts that went through um, with RCS back then doing grazing for profit. Interestingly enough, since I've had children, I've got three sons, um, I've put you know, my sons through um, holistic management and grazing for profit courses. I've attended with them because I always get something new out of it. Um, you're constantly learning um, these systems. And, yeah, you, there's always new people to meet and discuss their sort of individual situations with them. Um, so it, it's a fantastic journey. And I've put staff through it, I've put kids through it, and, you know, it's it's always paid off. And it's, it's that critical reflection time you need out to be able to just question how you manage your property or how you, um, how you treat your landscape. And, and, you know, we all need to take that time out just to reflect and, um, and, and be consciously aware of what we're doing. Now, you've had uh, held a number of economic business roles, so including a regional agribusiness manager and on the small business review panel of the Reserve Bank of Australia, so that's no <laughs> mean feat and quite a mouthful. So do you, you know your way around the numbers? And one of the biggest questions people have considering regenerative options, but also carbon farming, which I think is a bit of a separate issue, but we'll include it for the time being, how, and I guess it comes down to profit margins, so how do you remain profitable and still stay true to those regenerative principles? Mm, and it's a very good question. Um, and it's and look, it's about understanding the key profit drivers. Um, and regenerative ag is very much a key profit um, driver in itself. But ultimately, one of the ways that we do make profit is we have less overheads and less variable costs. So what I mean by that is less inputs such as, you know, the need for as much drenching, we have less pests and diseases needing to be treated, less feeding of grain, hay or silage, and basically less vet bills. Um, So it's through, and there's actually an academic um, 
Dr. Richard Teague over in, in Texas at Texas University that has done a lot of work in this space. Uh, so there is some pretty good science behind this stuff. And he's you know, literally demonstrated that regenerative grazing practices require much lower inputs. So your profit margins increase even if your yields remain the same. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really about understanding that you don't need to be on that spiral of constant inputs and high costs. You don't need the big machinery. You don't need the huge overheads and you don't need half the variable costs um, that you have in a grazing enterprise if you look at some of the regenerative practices. Um, I guess the other profit driver is the fact that, you know, it's water retention. So conventional farming methods uh, reduce rain infiltration into the soil and decrease your soil nutrients, which results in a lower soil moisture and then the need for more fertiliser inputs. Carbon in the soil is significantly reduced because of that. And then, you know, bare soil encourages the growth of, of, growth of weeds and exasperates the need for herbicides. And high tillage, bare fields exhibit more soil erosion, diminished rainfall infiltration and water storage ability. So regenerative grazing and regenerative practices allow you to retain what little water there might be um, out there. And with, with climate change kicking in like it is, um, it's really important that when it rains, we capture that rain within the soil profile. Really, I mean, if you look at a period of time over a four-year period, you might have two years of drought. You might have three years of drought. The thing about the regenerative guys is they have more consistent returns. Mm -hmm. So uh, the high input fellas will always get those big profits in a good year, but the regenerative folk, they'll get that consistency. So slow and steady wins the race. Yep, yep. absolutely. So now you're specialising, yep. you're turning off uh, finished steers, aren't you? That's right, so yes. They're heavier, yes. bigger beasts how is that harder to manage when you're dealing I'm imagining the impact on the soil and the and the pasture is going to be pretty dramatic with with heavier and and bigger animals so was that a trial and well, error to get to there or have you always sort of dealt with steers and that was where you, you wanted to no, make it I haven't I was actually uh no and this is the interesting thing about my journey because I was a breeder and so um, I went from having only like 350 breeders to now being able to turn off fat and steers. Um, and, and this is on the same property. So you've got 350. Same property. Yep. So 1,000 steers I can say and that the, 350 breeders. That's right. Yep. And, and I can honestly say I don't use superphosphate. I don't um, – I'm not an MPK person. I don't use those high inputs. I do correct the mineral deficiencies in the soil through soil testing. So, you know, lime is critical for where I am because it is it is a high rainfall, highly acidic soil, and so lime is, is a critical input. So I constantly do soil testing and, and correct those mineral deficiencies. Um, any any fertiliser, so we, you know, we're, we're looking at going, well, we've actually just signed up to go into carbon farming, which I'm happy to talk about. Yeah. But, you know, we need to come up with some new practices to do that. Well, things like um, putting in, in our case, we're going to be adding gypsum to our soil profile um, and we're going to be putting out um, organic compost and we'll be doing multi-species pasture cropping. Okay, but still not putting in as many inputs. Yeah, still not the same amount of inputs, but 
um, we'll also be in, increasing our stock density. So oh, nice. there's four practice changes we will be doing to be part of carbon farming and ultimately being able to trade our carbon. And they're all regenerative practices. And not only will result hopefully in a payment for the carbon that, that that's being uh, sequestered, but also it's improving, again, improving your whole, um, the economics of your operation and improving your bottom line. So it's the double whammy. And what I often talk to people about is it's really important to understand triple bottom line when we talk about this stuff. So you've always got to understand, you know, how can we make financially sustainable operations? So that's the economics, but it's also environmentally got to stack up and socially it's got to stack up. And so what I mean by that is, you know, it's got to be good for the community and it's got to be good for the family that lives there. So, already regenerative farmers, their health and well-being, both their mental and their physical health, is far outstripping conventional farming systems. And there's there's some solid research around that. And so what are the biggest roadblocks then people are facing? Because, you know, that's that makes a beautiful poster and, you know, you've got me sold and everyone listening. However, you know, there obviously still are plenty of people who haven't taken it on. So what's what are the main roadblocks you've come across? Uh, look, I think it's just um, it all seems – let's face it, it's been a pretty tough few years Um and farmers are really, in the last few years, what with we've had droughts, floods, Bush we've fires. had fires, and we've now got COVID. Floods. You know, mm. it just never ends. And trying to implement new practices, uh, it takes, in their mind, it takes time and money. Mm-hmm. But in actual fact, the wonderful thing about regenerative agricultural practices, which is different than organics. That was my next question. (laughs) Very different. Organics is just another tool in the regenerative toolbox. Okay. okay? So it's not about dropping chemicals altogether or it's about a massive change you do business. It's not about that. It's about a whole heap of different tools and practices, some of which are relevant to a landscape and some aren't. And it's about just adopting one or two of those practices and, and giving them a go not the whole lot in one go, otherwise that's like a detox Mm -hmm. and it's a good way to go broke. Mm -hmm. But just having a look at that list of what constitutes regenerative practice and just running with a couple of them that you feel comfortable about and that may suit your particular environment. We had Charlie Arnott, a fellow New South Welsh regenerative farmer, on um, a couple of episodes or maybe even last episode, but he said that he went in cold turkey and just changed everything at once, which he does not advise anyone yeah. to do. So when no. you're saying, you know, going in slowly, how did you get in? How What were your first few steps? Um, well, definitely I got in through um, time control grazing. So... You know, as soon as they told me, I had for years tried to keep up with the Joneses. You know, I'd listen to the neighbours, I'd listen to the consultants and all the so-called experts. I needed so much super phosphate and so many tonnes of this and so many tonnes of that. I needed a bigger, redder tractor. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> a lot of spreadsheets and a big checkbook. <laughs> you know, I needed a bloody big checkbook and I didn't actually have any money at all to spend on any of this stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and so it was a huge stress to think, oh, my God, how can I... I need all of this to look after this country and be a good farmer. 
how the hell am I going to do that? Which is probably why I ended up venturing into so many other careers as well, which was basically to help me keep funding my real passion, which was farming. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the club, yeah. (laughs) But then, you know, when you go through that holistic um, education and, and it is about understanding complex adaptive systems. Now, what I mean by that is that, you know, ecology and nature is an ever-evolving, ever-adapting system. Not one farm will be the same as another. Not one landscape um, will act the same as another because it is so complex. And so when you start to understand the relationships that are involved um, in ecology and when you understand the whole concept of holism, so holistic thinking, it's a massive paradigm shift. And all of a sudden, you realise that, oh, my God, I don't have to do it that way anymore. There is another way. And that way is actually understanding what's going on in the landscape, actually working with nature, not against it, actually trying to sort of use nature as a tool for enhancing your pastures um, and, and, you know, increasing your bottom lines. So I, I work with nature. I don't work against her. Mm-hmm. Nobody and, wins that race. <laughs> no, definitely not. So, you know, you yep. said you've been doing that for 28 years or, or whatever it was, 28 that you said before. Are your neighbours mm. doing the same thing? Like, is it... No, no, this is a wonderful thing. We, we do laugh about it because I have my, um, and, I, and I love my neighbours, but I have my, I call them the NPK kings and the urea kings. Yep. Um, they love their latest ryegrass species that goes in at least every second year and the paddock gets <laughs> sprayed out and re-drilled and, you know, it's just horrendous to watch. Um, and what's interesting is those guys, you know, they're always going to beat me on the kilos per beef per hectare over a 12-month period. But then if you look at it perhaps over a four-year period, um, coming off the back of, you know, the worst drought in history, it st- soon becomes apparent that those latest ryegrass species are going to bowl over against a lovely mix of improved and native pastures. Mm. And, you know, native pastures are there for a reason. It's because they've adapted to the landscape. And uh, native pastures can be very resilient. So it is interesting to um, to see. And I'm in groups, you know, I'm in the cost of production beef groups and um, I'm a beef marketing group. And, you know, so I, I'm... I'm sort of liaising with these conventional farmers all the time and I don't for one minute knock what they do. You know, that's their choice. Um, And they are about the economics, but we can't be just about economics. It's got to be economics along with looking after the environment and working with the environment. And long-term sustainability. Absolutely. I mean, if you want to talk about resilience, you've got to talk about the resilience of people and landscapes and communities, mm-hmm. and that's the regen way. That's what we're about. We're about being resilient into the future, so that future generations of farmers will actually exist, mm-hmm. and so, that we can feed the world, <laughs> or at least feed Australia, which is what I'm more concerned about at times. <laughs> yes. Well, so going into to carbon farming because you know we have been it's been around for years. Um, 
the science has been evolving and there's certainly a lot more information around it now, but uh, graziers aren't probably the number one group to be putting their hands up for it. Why is that? When we've got all these vast tracts of land and wide open spaces and beautiful fauna. Carbon farming, yes, it has been around for years, but actually I think uh, farmers are on a massive learning curve here. It is quite complex. It, um, the whole trading and the market mechanisms take a fair bit to get your head around. And let's face it, there's a lot of sharks out there, so you've got to be very careful when you, when you go into this. But uh, I think there's just a huge learning journey to happen across Australia when it comes to carbon farming. But the upside is incredible. Not only will it reduce greenhouse emissions, but at long last farmers will be paid for actually um, sequestering carbon back into the soil. So they'll be paid for looking after the environment and, and being environmental stewards. So why aren't people putting their hands up for it? Is it just because it's the great unknown still? I think it's just lack of information. Yeah. And let's face it, farmers like to see, you know, like to see another farmer having a go first and then they <laughs> <laughs> and they think, oh, okay, well, Joe Bloggs has done that, so made you all know, the mistakes, and I can go. come in. Yeah. yeah, true. So you always you always need a champion within a catchment area or within a, a community um, that's actually out there doing it for others to follow. That's how farmers learn. They they learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but I can honestly say, in the future, we won't refer to ourselves as graziers or farmers. We'll refer to ourselves as carbon farmers that happen to use livestock as a tool um, for carbon sequestration. Goodness me, Lorraine, I think you <laughs> That is a, a we're wonderful... We're not far off that. Yeah, right, we're not, okay. We're not far off. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I'm, I'm going to change tact a little bit because you're a director of the Commonwealth Government's Farming Together program as well. So what is that and what are you helping farmers to achieve? So Farming Together, um, it started as a pilot program and a, a common, it was funded by the Commonwealth And it was really to help farmers have a little bit more control along their supply chains and increase their returns at the farm gate. And the way that it was um, uh, designed was to help them to have that control through collaborative models and in some cases co-ops. Now that program, um, obviously there was a real thirst across Australia for understanding how to collaborate and how to work together to achieve um, a better bottom line, basically. Mm -hmm. And we ended up, we were supposed to assist 2,000 farmers in that program, Mm -hmm. and we ended up with 28,500 farmers in our program. That was farmers, fishers and foresters. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we were supposed to um, support 100 groups, and we ended up with 760 collaborative groups in every region of the country and in every industry, every rural industry related to primary industries. So the numbers were incredible and it just showed how many fantastic concepts and ideas were out there just needing a leg up, just needing some expert support or a consultant to be put with them that actually knew that's particular area or that particular industry or that particular supply chain Um, or they just needed a bucket of money to fly you know so they could just implement what a group had been working on 
And so how many of those groups are still going now? Well, we ended up, um, oh, look, most of them are still going. We ended up with 70 new co-ops okay. across the country. Very, which, which industries were the best take-up, do you think? Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I can't say, look, it was really broad. There was a lot of horticultural yep. industries, um, graziers, wool growers, fishing co-ops, mm. uh, forestry. You so know, There's it was still plenty of people thinking about broad. it then. Yeah, great. It was um, it was good to see. There was a, a you know from garlic to you know to cattle right up in the top end. Uh, it was yeah, it was very broad take up, and so we've continued with that program now, um, and we're we're very focused on actually uh, helping people to understand the power of collaboration, and helping them to establish a really good structure around their concept or their idea. And let's face it, I mean, the future of rural and, and remote Australia relies on people being able to work together. That's what we've always done in the bush and that's that's what gets the best results. And I think too now with all of the, the floods and the fires and everything and ongoing drought, no parts of Australia have been in drought for seven years and it's bigger than your farm gate now and it it's affecting businesses and, and townships and those smaller communities. So... I guess they're bringing more of these groups together or at least empowering some of these groups can only mean more for local communities too. That's exactly right. And, um, the fires, there's actually been some research done on how the fires have actually broken down a lot of networks. Mm-hmm. Really? Um, just And it's, it's, well, in many cases it's um, that fight or flight uh, mentality and mm-hmm. that, you know, those those normal communication chains were broken down um, or even where people normally would travel to for goods and services, all that infrastructure and all of that, um, all what was in place quickly uh, broke down after the fires. And uh, so that's now got to be re- re-established. And, and, look, some will establish very quickly. Others will take some time. And the, the little... St- social networks or the um, hobbies people are involved in or the clubs people are involved in. I mean, all of that becomes secondary to survival. Mm -hmm. And so that's a social network that is lost. And, uh, and so, yeah, people were literally just trying to survive as a family um, and particularly family farms uh, without having to be able to, not in a position to be able to support other farms. So, I guess our role is really to ensure those strong collaborations um, are in place just to help rural Australia be more resilient in the future. Right. Well, that's all good work. So uh, changing tact a little bit again, but um, besides grazing cattle, you work with Southern Cross University as a Director of Strategic Projects and Associate Director for Organics Research. And I understand the university is the only one in the world offering a Bachelor of Science majoring in regenerative agriculture. So how did that come about? Was that your flag to fly? or? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. (laughs) Well, uh, how it came about was um, I had felt for some time that agriculture education in Australia had stagnated. And what I mean by that is there was a huge focus on ag tech, mm-hmm. but 
the core elements of understanding complex adaptive systems, ecology, how nature works, um, even soil microbiology, all these important things were sort of becoming secondary to the big ag tech will save the day approach. Mm-hmm. And some of the ways that we were, were teaching ag, and this is still going on, you know, it was what we were teaching 50 years ago. And so I thought, well, this is not, (laughs) in a changing climate, this is certainly not going to set us up with a future uh, generation of farmers that are going to be able to tackle these really complex, wicked problems that are coming at us and constantly coming at us. So I knew it was time for change. The wonderful thing about Southern Cross is that it had no baggage. So we didn't have an existing ag course. We were very strong on ecology. Um, a world-leading plant lab, Australia's leading soil lab in EAL. And so, yeah, very strong on the environmental side of things, but we didn't have that traditional ag course that we had to sort of convince all of these teachers um, uh, and lecturers that we needed to change track. So, you know, these ships are big ships to turn at times um, because you're really pushing the boundaries of where we need to be. Mm. So we could start with a, a, a fresh palette and just say, right, what is it that we need to, to teach our students and how do we set them up to be sustainable in the future and to still be in business and to still be farmers or advisors or consultants or whatever they end up being, how do we actually teach students to read a landscape and to think? So it was exciting because it was cutting edge and it's new and it's meeting the needs of future farmers. Mm-hmm. And at this point, it's the biggest ag course in the country and the only one of its kind in the world. So there you go. This regen stuff is really uh, is is a serious thing. It's a serious movement. And uh, it's starting to accumulate some very solid science behind it. Um, and clearly, you know, it, there was a demand for it. For farming, yeah, a different way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it obviously you know. had some quite strong um, foundations there at the university too with, with all the ecology. Absolutely. Now, we are coming to, to the end of our time together, but we are here because of Beef Australia uh, and talking about beef. And you're going to be making it to the Beef 21 event, Lorraine. What role are you going to be doing up there this time? I guess I I definitely would love to be at the Beef 21 event. Um, Don't tell me you haven't booked accommodation love- or anything yet, <laughs> flying by the seat of your pants. <laughs> You know, the the way I usually operate is um, I have to look the night before on what's coming the next day or at least that morning because I, 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 it's very <laughs> like difficult for me to book a week country. out. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I spend half a day troubleshooting and then I might get some other stuff done in the afternoon. No, I can completely um, uh, yes. understand that. Definitely keen to be up there. Loved, would love to see a QA and a panel on the regenerative ag space and and grazing systems. That would be that would be a great initiative. Well, I'll get my people to speak to your people. Not that I have many people, but you know, we'll see what we can do, Lorraine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's an interest area for people, and you know, farmers are looking to do things differently. They realise that this is not the same scenario of the past. You know, we are in some serious climate change now 
And we have all sorts of, you know, I guess um, unexpected things coming at us and we really need to be looking to do things differently. Okay. Well, look, it's been a pleasure to chat, but I do just want to ask you one more question before we go, and it's something that I've asked all of our podcast guests so far. I want to know your favourite beef cut to cook for just a weeknight dinner. When you're looking in the supermarket or in the cold room or the freezer or whatever it is just for your go-to meal, what cut are you pulling out? Well, you know, I love to buy, oh, I love to buy a whole piece of eye fillet. Ooh, you just yeah, got fancy I, on us. Hang I, on, <laughs> I'm coming I over Tuesday. I don't get fancy on you. <laughs> and then I'll just sear that and seal it in a pan very quickly. Yep. I'll put that in the oven for about 15 minutes and then I'll do a mushroom and sour cream um, sauce with uh, horseradish in it and uh, I'll do a whole heap of different types of mushrooms Mm -hmm. but that would have to be one of yeah my very favorite meals Um, I'm a bit I'm a bit of a I'm a bit of a uh, beef junkie when it comes to uh, cooking beef properly okay what does that mean when you say beef junkie I I I just I love my beef I just I love I love red meat and uh, <laughs> what can I say? Well, I don't function well human. without it for very long. Yeah, you're only human, Lorraine, and that sounds delicious. So if that's what you're having on an average Tuesday, I'll just pop down to New South Wales because that sounds amazing. And it's important to I mean, gosh, I must say, and I do like I do like it rare. Yep. So <laughs> and that that Not, in itself is fantastic. Yep. Yep. So there you go. That's that's probably one of my favourite cuts. That's beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing um all of all of what we've spoken about, Lorraine. It's been an absolute pleasure, and hopefully we will uh, see you at Beef Twenty One. Yep. Now look, it's been good to talk to you. And um, look, you could probably mention too that next year we're kicking off the graduate certificate in regenerative oh. agriculture, which will lead to a master's. Holy dooly! So there's the degree, which is the Bachelor of Science in uh, Regenerative Ag, but mm-hmm. there'll be a graduate certificate kicking off uh, first semester next year. So that could be a good thing for, you know, 2021. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. To, just to be aware of that, that it's coming. Well, obviously you've got plenty of interest and people who are well and truly behind the evolving beef industry. Thank you so much, Lorraine Gordon. My pleasure. All the best. Thanks for listening. You can hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of our episodes. And if you are enjoying listening to the show, we would appreciate a quick rating and review. Visit beefaustralia.com.au for more information on this great event.